Well, I invite you to turn with me to Joshua 7. Joshua 7, as we continue our study of the book of Joshua. As I was preparing, I gave birth to twins in respect to the sermon. I was going to preach one sermon on Joshua 7, but uh, it's a bit too much uh, for one sermon. And uh, there's two sermons here. So, Lord willing, we're going to look again at Joshua 7. Uh, today we're going to focus in on this sin of Achan. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the punishment that's meted out for Achan's sin and draw some uh, lessons for our lives from that as well, both today and, and next week. So just to give you the context before we read, the people of God and, uh, have just experienced a great victory as the Lord delivered Jericho into their hands in chapter 6. They were instructed during that, uh, that battle uh, to destroy everything except the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, which were to be devoted to the treasury of the Lord. And with that in mind, let's stand together, if you're able, for the reading of God's word from Joshua 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our names from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Well, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought nearby your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. 
And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the, and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord, returned, then the Lord turned from his burning anger Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. May God bless the reading and hearing of his words. You may be seated. In the mid-1950s, Francis Schaeffer, who had earlier in his life moved from agnosticism, embraced Christianity... Uh, went to seminary, got trained, became a pastor and ultimately a missionary in Europe, specifically living in Switzerland. Well, he had a crisis of the faith around 1955 uh, where he began to uh, wonder if he had made the right decision in embracing Christianity. And he told his wife, Edith, that he was going to have to go back to the very beginning and assess whether he had done the right thing in becoming a Christian or not. And so he did so. He searched the scriptures. He spent time walking and praying and thinking and, and ultimately realized that he had indeed made the right decision. But through the, his studies, he learned some things about spirituality. Uh, he learned that Christianity was not just external. It's not just about what you do or don't do, but Christianity is a matter of the heart. And he turned these lessons that he learned into a series of lectures, ultimately a book that you can buy today, and that book is called True Spirituality. Uh, I highly recommend it. I've read the first chapter, uh, and I've been reading that first chapter. It's not very long, but it's so good. I've read it for about two weeks, just soaking in it. Really good stuff. And in that chapter, he talks about covetousness, and of course this is all God working in his providence, because here we are, 
going to talk about covetousness today. Achan, his sin at the heart of the matter was covetousness. He, he says that himself in this chapter. Now, this morning, I want to explore uh, Achan's sin and draw a le- some lessons from that sin. And, and the, the goal is for us to see, uh, well, several things, but really to see that we need a, a heart change. And, and it's all about our hearts when it comes to Christianity. And, and in our battle with sin, if we are not getting to the heart of the matter, our hearts and where they are, that's where the, the, the root of the sin is. If we don't get into there and know what's going on there, then we're never going to change on the outside. So there's some important lessons to be drawn from Achan, uh, Achan's bad example here this morning. And I want you to see, first of all, that Achan's sin had an outward element and an inward element. In other words, he did sin in taking something that was forbidden, the plunder from battle that was to be devoted to destruction like this robe that he took, or uh, those things, the silver and the gold that were to be devoted to the treasury of the Lord. That was, yes, the, the, the act that came out uh, that, that was sinful, that was being punished. Um, he took what amounts to about six pounds of silver, and about a pound and a quarter of gold. Now, I don't know what the value of silver and gold was in Joshua's day, but today, uh, in our markets, the silver would be worth about $2,200, and the gold would be worth about $35,000. And then, of course, this fancy robe as well was probably priceless. Uh, that's, that's immaterial, but, you know, six pounds of silver, a pound of gold, and a robe, easy to stash, easy to take away without anyone noticing. And that was the outward part of his sin. But the root of the sin was what happened in his heart. There's a sin that lay behind that sin of taking the forbidden goods, the inward heart element. If you look at verse 20 where Achan confesses his sin... He says, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. So Achan has gotten to the heart of the problem, and it is that he saw these things and coveted those things, and that's why he took those things. So the sin behind the sin of taking the silver, gold, and the robe was covetousness. And it's the same word uh, as the, the word that's in the 10th commandment, where, uh, where it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That word, the Hebrew word there, means to desire or covet or crave something. Achan's heart was set on having these things, which did not belong to him. Classic covetousness. Now you notice not only that the sin was covetousness, but there's a pattern and progression in his sin that he describes. First, he saw the cloak, 
the silver, the gold. He saw those things. Second, he coveted them. He desired them. He craved them. And then thirdly, he took them. Now that should sound familiar to us. Uh, Take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were there and the serpent came along. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, that's the same Hebrew word for covet, it was coveted to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So there's patterns, saw, coveted, and took. And the New Testament uses the same concepts. The main word translated as covet in the New Testament is also translated in other verses as lust or desire. Epithumia is the main word, and it literally means, as a compound word, it means over-desire. Over-desire, lust, something that you crave and, and want more than anything else. James 1.13, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Covetousness. Then desire or covetousness, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Covetousness. It's the sin, actually, that lies under every sin, some scholars say, and I've read more than one scholar who makes that argument. Covetousness is behind every sin. Or, to put it another way, you can't break any of the Ten Commandments without breaking the Tenth Commandment. You can't break any of the Ten Commandments without breaking the Tenth Commandment. Now think about that. Why would you, well, commit adultery? First of all, you covet your neighbor's wife. You covet your neighbor's husband. And that leads to the adultery. First, there's covetousness. Stealing something. Why do you steal something? You covet it. You want that thing that doesn't belong to you. And so you steal it. Covetousness is at the heart of it. Even the first four, uh, the, 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 the commandments that deal with the relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. Why would you put some other God before me? Because you want to have a God that you can control. You covet to be God. Because if you're in control of your God, a God made in your own image, then that puts you in the place of God. So what you're actually doing when you worship something besides God, you are coveting God's position, God's power, God's authority. And really that's what Adam and Eve were doing in the Garden of Eden. They saw that the, the fruit was, was good to make one wise like God. They coveted God's power, God's wisdom. You can go on down the list and we could draw out each example. Covetousness is a good argument to be made that it is at the heart of every sin. Um, it's what Jesus was getting about to uh, about getting on about in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you know it's, it's written, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, even if you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery. Lust, it's the same word as desire, 
as covetousness. See, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. It's a matter of the heart, Jesus says. Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what devile a person. So it's a matter of the heart. And covetousness is in our hearts. We have our own set of desires that we want, things that we desire. And that leads us to reject God and his word. This was the sin that really got the Apostle Paul because, I mean, if you think about the Ten Commandments, the first nine really do all have, uh, as they are described at face value, more of an outward element. You know, no other gods before me, that might be a little vague, but when you have other gods before God, you're worshiping something, you're doing something. If you make a graven image, that's doing something. If you use the Lord's name in vain, that's doing something. If you break the Sabbath, you're either not doing something or you're doing something you're not supposed to do. And then the ones that deal with the relationship with men, if you steal something, if you commit adultery, if you lie, there's action there. But covetousness, the, the command, you shall not covet, it's all about your heart. It's all about the heart. It's not that you've gone and taken what belongs to your neighbor yet, that's when you steal. See, coveting, that's just the desire that's there. If you want something that doesn't belong to you or something uh, that belongs to God, if you desire those things, it's all just in your heart. It hasn't expressed itself outwardly. That's when you get into breaking the other commandments. Covetousness is what tripped Paul up in a good way. You, re you remember in Romans 7... He's talking about his own struggle with the sin nature. And he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. See, he's talking about an inward quality. You know, his heart. Because if you read Philippians 3, what does it tell us? Paul said, I was the best Jew that ever lived. I, I was perfectly righteous outwardly. There was no fault in me at all. But I now count all those things rubbish. I mean, the, the NIV translation says, translates, uh, you know, that where Paul says, uh, according to the law, I was faultless. Uh, it, it changes it to say I was like more self-righteous because Paul couldn't be perfect, right? But Paul didn't say it that way. Paul says, in reference to the law, I was blameless until he comes to covetousness. Sinclair Ferguson has an interesting take on this, and he's not the only one, but here's what he, he said in a, in a lecture one time. I, I actually personally have come to the conviction that when Paul says in Romans 7 that sin revived and he died, and it was when the commandment said, you shall not covet, that he felt himself undone, that in all likelihood what lay behind that was his encounter with Stephen. You remember when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, 
Paul was in attendance. He was holding everybody's cloak while Stephen was being stoned. I think Luke, since this is Ferguson going on, I think Luke makes it almost certainly clear in the Acts of the Apostles that Stephen and Saul belong to the same synagogue in Jerusalem. And Paul says in Philippians 3 that he outstripped everybody. There was nobody that could hold a candle to him, but Luke tells us in Acts that there was nobody that could hold a candle to Stephen. And I suspect that for the very first time in his life, Saul of Tarsus coveted something religious in somebody else that he could not find in himself. And it's against that background that Saul of Tarsus was converted. The intricacies of the relationship between the conversion of Saul and the life of Stephen are far too clear in Paul's writings as well as in the Acts of the Apostles, I think, to come to any other conclusion. So you see, Paul had all the outward elements of religion, but what he saw in Stephen, a true, true spirituality from the heart, that was something that he did not possess. And that's how the Lord changed his life. There's always a heart element to sin. And I want you to recognize that and also to recognize that covetousness is really at the heart of all of our sins so that you can kill sin. You know, we are called to mortify sin, to put it to death. And you and I know, both of, all, all of us know that it is a struggle to put together sin, especially our favorite ones. There's some that we just desire too much. We want those things. We love those things. We're addicted to those things. But if we want to kill the sin, we've got to go to the root of the matter, to the heart, and ask ourselves, when I do that thing, when I look at pornography, when I eat too much or drink too much, or, or when I do whatever it is that I'm struggling with, why am I doing that? What am I coveting at that moment? What is it that I desire over everything else that God desires for me? That's when we get to the heart of our sin, where we get to the very uh, root of why we do the things that we do. A, a person doesn't get drunk uh, just to get drunk. There's usually something under there. They're looking for maybe an escape, uh, maybe just pleasure. Uh, maybe a comfort from their problems, release from anxiety. There's numerous reasons. What is it for you, or if you're struggling with that particular sin? And, and what, are, what is it that you want from that? And where should you be looking to get that? Comfort, peace. Well, God's the place where we get comfort, peace. Even good things can become sinful things when they become objects that we covet. You know, many of you are single. You desire a relationship. You want to be in a relationship with someone, and you desire that greatly. Well, it can become an over-desire, an, an over a lust, a desire that just drives your life and controls you. And that can lead you into all kinds of problems. These are just a couple of examples, but I just want you to see that it's, that it's in the heart. That's what happened to Achan. 
You know, we don't know exactly why he coveted those things. What was he seeking to gain from it? I mean, obviously, these things were worth uh, a lot. But for us, like Achan, we need to look and see what it is that's really going on in our hearts. Well, how do we, what's the antidote for that, for coveting? And it's twofold. Um, the reason that we do covet is because we are ungrateful, not thankful, and we are discontent. Why do I want certain things? It's because I don't have them. I'm not content with where I am. But if you think about it, as a, as a, as a Christian, if you are a Christian, what are we told? We have a personal God who loves us. Uh, he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. We have a God who is not only uh, personal, but he's sovereign. And he knows everything about everybody, everywhere, all the time. And he controls those things. And if we have a, a loving father who always has our best interest at heart, and we also have a father who is sovereign over everything, then whatever our circumstances, they are under his control and his directive. That's what Romans 8 is all about, Romans 8, 28. Uh, all things work to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, the bad things as well as the good things. God has a spiritual battle going on in this world that he's created. And he has decided to put you at a certain point in that battle. And that's his right to do so. But what do we want? We don't want to be in that part of the battle. We want to be over here in the battle. Or we don't want to be in the battle at all. We, we, we don't want to listen to the directives of our king and our father who has our best interest at heart. We want to call the shots in our own life. We want to do what we want to do. We want to get comfort in the ways that we want comfort instead of submitting to his will. The antidote is gratitude, thanksgiving. Throughout the New Testament, we are told to give thanks in every circumstance. Every circumstance. Always be thankful. And that's not just like we did at Thanksgiving and go around the table and say, yes, I'm thankful for you know, that for my family or for this food, this big turkey that I'm about to eat. Uh, yes, those are good things to be thankful about, but when it's talking about being thankful, it is being, having a posture of submission to God and of recognizing that every good and perfect gift is from Him. He is the Creator. We are the creature. And we should live in a posture of thanksgiving. When you thank someone, what you're doing is you're recognizing that you know, it, you were given these things. You didn't earn them or you deserve them. You're just thankful that you have them. And, 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 or in the circumstances that you're in, you've got that from somewhere else, and that makes you grateful. So when we live grateful lives full of thanksgiving, we're in, we're in a constant uh, place of submission to God, of recognizing that He's the Creator. We're His people. We're His creatures and he loves us. He's got our very best interest at heart. And, and we're thankful for where, wherever he has us and whatever he's given us. We don't need to covet something over there 
or some other circumstances that we're in. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to improve our circumstances. That's true. We should always strive to be the best, but always recognize that God has you where he has you if you are his child there for a reason. You need to stop and say, what lessons do I need to learn in this season when I'm in this difficult circumstance? What is God doing? We may not know all the details, but just that posture of recognizing that, yes, God has me in this place at this moment. It may not be what I want, but what I want is not as important as what God wants for me. See, that's thanksgiving, and that's contentment, saying God has given me what he's given me. He's placed me where he's placed me, and it's good. God is good all the time. He's loving me in this circumstance and I, and I need not run from him, run from his ways or his paths that he has me on. Well, covetousness, the desire for something else, the desire for something that someone else has, different circumstances, or just a desire to, be, to covet what God has, his power, his control. These are all things that trip us up continuously. And as we really look down into our hearts, we recognize, man, we're sinful. <laughs> I was uh, reading Twitter, which is never a good idea, this week, because it's of the devil, I'm sure. But uh, uh, one, uh, somebody quoted a tweet from a, this uh, woman who is, she's apparently getting her MA in Bible study, or, or biblical studies, and she was saying that you know, she's figured it all out that the church has had it wrong for several thousand years, but that uh, Jesus came to convince us that we're not evil. That was the, that's the purpose. Jesus came to convince you that you're not a bad person. And I'm like, well, why did he die on the cross if, if that's the case? I mean, he went to a lot of trouble for us if that's the case. Or explain that to those people who were the subjects of genocide. Hitler wasn't evil. He just needed to recognize that he wasn't evil. That doesn't hold up, obviously. Well, we're all sinners. And as we look down into our hearts, we recognize we need someone to change our hearts. And that's what David prayed. You know, David was a man after God's own heart, but he sinned. He committed adultery. He conspired to murder Uriah the Hittite. And of course, in Psalm 51, he cries out to the Lord. And, and I just read this, so we'll cry out to the Lord. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. See, David understood it was his heart that was the problem. He coveted Bathsheba. He coveted her, and he was willing to kill to get her. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's make that our prayer today. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God's salvation, your salvation, he says. It's the salvation that God is providing for you. Submit to that. Trust him in your life with everything. That's the antidote to covetousness in the heart. 
Well, Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need to be cleansed from the, from the covetousness that is in our hearts. And I hope that this sermon will help us all to recognize that we need to be continuously cleansed by Jesus. It's not a matter of us just saying, okay, in my own wisdom and power, I'm going to fight the covetousness that's in my heart. If you've ever tried to do that, you know you don't get very far. You need a change of heart. I need a change of heart. And Jesus is in the business of changing hearts. We are new creations in Christ. He's creating something new in us. He's got the power to do so. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll come to the table. And again, this is a means of grace, a means through which we are reminded and experience God's renewing grace and forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice for us, for us sinners whose hearts are often far from you. Our hearts are set on other things rather than on you. Uh, even good things in our lives, good gifts, we, we turn them into things that are more important than you. Forgive us, Lord. We pray that you would renew us, new, make us new once again. Forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, grant us a true repentance that really stops to think, what is, what is, the, what is at the heart of the sins that I'm committing? What are the sins behind the sins? And help us to kill sin at the root by the power of the Spirit, not by our own willpower, but by the Spirit working in us, creating a holy nation, a people for your good pleasure, who walk with you and are your ambassadors to a lost and dying world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.